guys, um, before we get started, just wanted to let you know that I have published a card co at icebreakerpodcast.card.co and my transcript and sources for all the episodes should be up there by April 12th. So if you're interested in reading or doing some more research, check there. Okay, so moving on to today's topic, in case you couldn't tell by the title, we are going to be discussing environmental racism and how minority groups are disproportionately affected by climate change and how this in turn further reinforces inequalities and divisions within marginalized communities. So let's preface this by saying that even though the climate crisis really affects everyone, the social impacts that climate change has, especially on low income or black or indigenous people of color, it really leaves these communities, as said before, disproportionately vulnerable to its effects meaning that minorities are already very acutely feeling the consequences of climate change before many other communities. And while recognition of the social and institutional dimensions of extreme weather events and other disasters is increasing, not enough is being done to address their impact. So extreme weather events and disasters meaning like the effects of Hurricane Katrina on New Orleans and such. Okay, so let's start off with our first thing, which is what is environmental racism? Environmental racism is a concept in the environmental justice movement that is used to describe the environmental injustice that occurs within a racialized context, both in practice and policy, in which socially marginalized communities and minority groups are subjected to disproportionate exposure to environmental hazards, a denial of access to necessary sources such as clean air and water, other natural resources, and the infringement of environmentally related human rights. So I just threw a bunch of really big words at you. So what environmental racism basically means is it is what it sa- it's it's what it sounds like. Racism in the context of the environmental hazards. Okay. So, let's move on to how you would characterize environmental racism. So, Reverend Dr. Benjamin Chavez um, was an African-American civil rights leader and the former executive director of the NAACP and a long-time civil rights community organizer and activist. And he characterized America's environmental policy as environmental racism. And he defined it as the five categories. Number one being racial discrimination in defining environmental policies. Number two, the discriminatory enforcement of regulations and laws. Number three, the deliberate targeting of minority communities as hazardous waste dumping sites. Number four, the official sanctioning of dangerous pollutants in minority communities, which I have a really good example that we are going to be sharing later on. And number five, the exclusion of people of color from environmental leadership positions. And I think these five statements do a really good job of summarizing the problems that the environment has on minority groups. And processes such as suburbanization, gentrification, and decentralization really lead to these patterns of environmental race. So let's, for example, let's focus on the process of suburbanization, also known as white flight. 
which happens when non-minorities leave industrial zones for safer and cleaner suburban locales, whereas minority communities are left in the inner cities and in closer proximity to polluted industrial zones. So in these inner city areas, unemployment is high and businesses are less less likely to invest in area improvement, which creates poor economic conditions for residents that reinforces a social formation that reproduces racial inequality. Furthermore, the poverty of property owners and residents in a municipality might be taken into consideration by hazardous waste facility developers, since areas with depressed real estate values will cut expenses. So it's kind of a whole cycle where minority communities can't leave, businesses are less likely to improve it, so they are faced with poverty, and because of their poverty, their prop- the property value is lowered. In terms of poverty, let's further look at it and how it can lead to patterns, and let's take a look at a term known as cost-benefit analysis. So, I don't know too much about you know, financial literacy or anything. So I had to search what it is, what it was, and it says that it's cost-benefit analysis is used to place a monetary value on benefits and costs to see what value a project or proposal has. So in regards to the environment, this analysis aims to provide policy solutions for intangible products such as clean air and water by measuring a consumer's willingness to pay for these goods. So what CBA does, (laughs) you like my acronym? (laughs) Anyways, so CBA, what it does is that it contributes to environmental racism by valuing environmental resources based on their utility to society. So if someone is willing to and able to pay more for clean water or air, their society financially benefits more than when what people cannot pay for these goods, which creates a burden on poor communities because they don't have enough money for, you know, some basic human rights resources such as clean air and water. And in this case, relocating toxic waste is justified because poor communities are not able to pay as much as a wealthier area for a cleaner environment. So the placement of the toxic waste near poor people lowers the property value of the already very cheap land. And since the decrease in property value is less than that of a cleaner and wealthier area, the monetary benefits to society are greater if you are able to dump the toxic waste in a low value area. So as you can see, this it's this whole cycle where if you can't pay for your basic human rights and resources, then you will get waste dumped near you. And because of the waste, the value of your property is going to go down. And because the value of your property is going to go down, your the toxic waste is going to justify to- putting the toxic waste near your home and your land is quote unquote justified. So let's look at it. Let's look at how environmental racism affects us globally. We all know climate change has progressively changed over the past several decades, and there's been a really heavy collision between environmental racism and global climate change. And the overlap, many argue, has 
affected different communities and populations throughout the world due to disparities in their socioeconomic status. So let's take a look at the global south, specifically Quito, Ecuador. So, for example, byproducts of global climate change, such as increasingly frequent and severe landslides resulting from more heavy rainfall events because of climate change, force people to also deal with the profound socioeconomic ramifications like the destruction of their homes, or even death. Even though countries such as Ecuador often contribute relatively little to climate change in terms of metrics like, you know, carbon dioxide emissions, and they have fewer resources to ward off the negative localized impacts of climate change. This issue occurs globally, where nations in the global south often bear the burden of natural disasters and weather extremes, despite contributing not that much to the global carbon footprint. People of color in the global north also face similar situations in several areas. So I think, as I said before, I have a really good example that I want to focus on that is in the southeastern part of the United States. And the southeastern part of the United States has experienced a large amount of pollution. And in these communities, minority populations have been hit with the brunt of these impacts. And, you know, overall globally, the issues of climate change and communities that are in, you know, a danger zone are not limited to North America or the US. And there are several communities around the world that face the same concern of industry and people who are dealing with negative impacts in their areas. However, I will be focusing on the United States. Okay, so let's go back in time to the 1800s. Let's start off by saying the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and the Trail of Tears can be considered early examples of environmental racism in the US, especially because of their aftereffects. So the Indian Removal Act of 1830 said that by 1850, all tribes east of the Mississippi have been removed to Western lands, and it confined these tribes to lands that were quote-unquote, too dry, remote, or barren to attract the attention of settlers and corporations. Okay, so fast forward to World War II, military facilities were often located contiguous to reservations, which led to a situation where a disproportionate number of the most dangerous military facilities are located near Native American lands, even though technically all of America is... Native American land? Anyways, so a study analyzing the approximately 3,100 counties in the continental U.S. found that Native American lands are positively associated with the count of sites with unexploded ordnance deemed extremely dangerous. This study also found that the RAC, or Risk Assessment Code, that is used to measure the dangerousness of sites with unexploded ordnance, and they also found that the REC can sometimes conceal how much of a threat these sites are to Native Americans. And in this REC, the hazard probability, or probability that a hazard will harm people or ecosystems, is also sensitive to the proximity of public buildings, such as schools and hospitals. 
these parameters neglect elements of Native American life, such as substance consumption, ceremonial use of plants and animals, and lower population densities. And because these unique factors aren't considered, indigenous lands can often receive a lower risk score, despite the major threat to their way of life. And so the hazard probability doesn't really take indigenous people into account when considering the people or ecosystems that could be harmed. So, and then moving on with the Native American issues, um, an ongoing issue for Native American activists is the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Standing Rock Indian Preservation, which I do, I will be discussing in an episode about indigenous activism, so stay tuned for that. Okay, moving on from the military facilities near lands, let's talk about redlining. And redlining is a very important topic to discuss when you're talking about environmental racism because this topic really addresses, I think this topic really, you know, addresses the reason lower income families deal with higher health risks due to where they live and their proximity to environmental hazards. So what is redlining? Redlining is the systematic denial of various services or goods by the government or private sector, either directly or through selectively raising prices. And this often happens when strict criteria of specific services and goods that often disadvantage poor and minority communities is placed. Redlining was used in the housing industry by mortgage companies to prevent minority populations from receiving loans to buy homes in other neighborhoods and was also used to deny them funds to improve their current homes. This very directly contributed to the isolation of minority communities against white communities, deepening the wealth gap, which could be argued helped to establish the foundation for America's modern-day racial wealth gap. Um, Redlining was outlined in 1968 after the Fair Housing Act, but it had major repercussions. In the McGill International Review, Alua Kulinova writes about climate change and racism focusing on redlining, and she outlines how the very nature of redlining revolved around the desirability of certain neighborhoods, which is an inherently prejudiced notion that very clearly discriminated against Black and Hispanic and Indigenous people of color communities, meaning that people viewed neighborhoods with a majority of white population as more desirable and worthier investment. And then in this turn, as I've said before, it's all a cycle. It created a very self-perpetuating cycle where neighborhoods that were considered the safest investments received additional developments and loans, only increasing their value at the expense of livelihoods of those in segregated communities, which resulted in a similarly self-fulfilling prophecy for the segregated communities, meaning they had to deal with the impacts of poor infrastructure development, pollution, and other associated consequences that have only continued to impact the livelihoods of people living in previously redlined areas. Okay, so let's move on from the past and let's go to now. The good old panoramic pandemic. So, 
I have some notes from Raymond Smith's paper on how climate change and COVID-19 are linked, linked together. So I don't know if you guys remember this, but in the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was like, oh, but there's a bright side. Pollution levels are dropping and dolphins can swim in the Venice Canal or whatever. But are these drops in pollution actually a good step moving forward for minority communities? No. Considering that history repeats itself, and looking back at previous crises in the American economy, we can see that similar pollution drops happened during the recession in 2007-2008 and the energy crisis in the 1970s. However, after those crises passed, pollution levels mount back up. And, you know, I think it's pretty obvious to say that short three to four month reductions in industrial production are nowhere near enough to undo the decades of damage we as a population have done to the earth. And even if these minor changes in pollution does something, will it do the environment any good in the long run? Um, so Reagan Smith, she worries that the same resurgence will, re- will occur after governments lift the lockdown orders and production begins again. Especially because the nationwide focus isn't going to be climate change. It's going to be rebuilding the economy, which unfortunately may mean that companies will toss out their eco-friendly and sustainable options for cheaper and harmful ones in order to increase production and boost the economy, which may also mean that the government is going to put climate regulations on hold, disregarding the environment, which will in turn affect those living close to factories, and as we said before, low-income people of color, specifically Black Americans, are most likely going to be affected because they live closer to factories, meaning that marginalized communities are going to face more hardships due to environmental racism compared to their more privileged counterparts, meaning those higher up in the socioeconomic class. So, and you know, not only is this environmental and institutional racism harming those living near industrialized places, but it's also harming the blue-collar workers of these facilities. According to a paper on racial disparities in pollution exposure and employment at used facilities, Michael Ash and James K. Boyce write that in some of the top pollution facilities in America, African Americans held 10.8% of the jobs, but were faced with 17.4% of toxin exposure, facing around a 7% disparity. This is also similar for Hispanic workers, who faced around a 5% disparity. And a direct quote from Smith's paper states that with minority workers having such a high exposure risk, it's evident that with the decrease in pollution and toxic regulations that may lie ahead, these workers and people who live in close proximity to polluting facilities will face diseases such as cancer, heart disease, and more. Meaning that because marginalized communities are more vulnerable to the effects of climate change, and with the possible surge in pollution and lack of current attention to climate change, these groups are already looking at health issues and a variety of other problems. Now, for my very famous example that I have talked about like three times before because I was so passionate about this topic, let's point attention to the cancer capital, Mossville, Louisiana. Mossville is a largely 
black community in the mostly white Lake Charles suburb of Westlake in southwestern Louisiana, settled by African Americans looking for a haven from racial hostility. And it was started by Jim Moss, who was a former slave in around the 1760s ish, I think. Okay, so fast forward from then to the 1920s and 30s where oil and chemical companies began building manufacturing plants between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, which is a stretch of land now known as the Cancer Alley. Mossville is a town that is a mere five square miles, but is surrounded by 14 industrial facilities that spew over 1,000 tons of toxic pollution into the air, including oil refineries and the largest concentration of PVC plants anywhere in the US. And among these toxins are various carcinogens, which, you know, makes the cancer capital a fitting name. According to the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, the ATSDR, Mossville residents were tested twice in uh, 1998 and 2001. And the ATSDR found that the residents' blood dioxin levels were three times that of the general U.S. populations, and their vinyl chloride emissions were 120 times the ambient air standard. Okay, I'm no chemist, so what are dioxins? Dioxins are a group of chemically related compounds that are persistent environmental pollutants. And Mossville's dioxin rates were among the highest ever recorded in the country. As for vinyl chloride, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, it's used to manufacture plastic and vinyl products and has been implicated as a casual agent of angiosarcoma, a type of cancer, and other serious disorders, both carcinogenic and non-carcinogenic. In addition to these known pollutants and toxins that are being exposed in the Mossville community, we have surface and groundwater toxins that have been documented, and the ATSDR confirmed that the fish caught in nearby waters were contaminated with unsafe levels of dioxins and PCBs. So, PCB is a man-made organic chemical that is no longer used after being banned in 1979 due to toxicity having been labeled as hazardous waste. The reason PCBs are still present in the environment is because they don't readily break down. And as we saw before with the fish, they have been taken up into the bodies of these small organisms. And another um, toxin present in the groundwater and stuff is ethylene dichloride, which is another carcinogen. And this got into the groundwater during a time where Mossville residents had wells in their yard where this water was used to water their gardens, where they grew food. And if you eat the food you grow, you're digesting the chemicals in the food, meaning they were ingesting ethylene dichloride. So after I just spoke all this chemistry stuff, you could see how Mossville residents were quite literally being poisoned by their environment. And in 1998, residents began exhibiting chronic and life-threatening diseases that have been linked to the toxic chemicals released by Mossville's nearby facilities, factories. So fast forward to 2014, and we have this South African chemical giant Sasol, S-A-S-O-L, 
and they came up with a proposal that would basically wipe Mosul off the map. And this proposal was backed by Bobby Jindal, and you know, this plan would have been great for the company. I mean, Sassol stood to benefit from $2 billion in an incentive. As I said before, billion with a B. Yet, as we've seen before, in 1998 and 2001, this major proposal would have major consequences to the environment, and it would produce more greenhouse gases than any other facility in the state, and would be the end to Mosville, which is an already dying community. In February of 2014, the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality conducted an analysis saying that the new project would result in a significant net emissions increase of greenhouse gases, promethium, sulfur oxide, nitric oxide, and carbon monoxide. And they calculated that this plant itself would release more than 10 million cubic tons of greenhouse gases per year. Okay, 10 million, that that seems like a regular amount, right? Like, I mean, the world's polluted. But no, let's contrast this with the ExxonMobil refinery outside of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is a complex that is 250 times the size of the New Orleans Superdome, and it comparably emits a 6.6 million tons. Nonetheless, the Department of Environmental Quality determined that this plant won't have much effect on soil error or water quality and cleared Sassel under the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts, somehow. And they recommended that the plant be built three square miles near Mossville. Sassel even offered that they buy out Mossville homes at 160% of their appraised value. I mean, it seems kind of like a a win-win, except for the environment, of course, but, you know, Mossville residents can leave their homes and Sassel can still build their company and get a lot of money. But keep in mind, many of these families grew up in Mossville, and Mossville is their ancestral home. And you know, these are descendants of slaves that moved here when they weren't wanted in any other parts of the community. Citizens, however, were left little option but to move. The company had already taken over Mossville's elementary school. And you know, the, the company itself, they state that they're proud of their engagement with their neighbors in Mossville, Louisiana, a community west of our Lake Charles complex and that they have continually reached out to residents to keep them informed of our plans and solicit their input on what they could do to make a positive difference in their community. In comparison, Westlake, where Moscow resides, nestled even closer to many of the plants and is therefore vulnerable to the same pollution. But many people in both towns are sick with chronic conditions. Where, but however, Westlake's wider and wealthier residents, a good share of them work at the neighboring industrial facilities, never really joined the fight to combat environmental racism. Whereas, Mossville residents have for years petitioned the government to provide funding for relocation, as well as giving up their homes for a cleaner and healthier place for families to live. And to combat this environmental racism, Mossville res- residents had created MEAN or the Mossville Environmental Action Now, and began collaborating with various other groups, calling for stricter emission practices and policies. Working since the 1980s as as environmental justice advocates to address the industrial toxins that pollute their community. And MUN was one of the first environmental justice organizations to bring the US government before an international human rights body on charges of violating a community's right to a clean environment. 
So, we already know that Sassel, not really good for Mossville. Well, A, it's obviously terrible for the environment, and B, Mossville really had, they, they suffered, this town suffered, and I wish I could say that Sassel didn't build a plant, and we were able to fight against it, or that Mossville families have stayed in their ancestral homes, building a flourishing community in a healthy and clean environment. But I can't. Because Mossville, Louisiana was a once thriving community founded by formerly enslaved and free people of color, an economically flourishing safe haven for many generations of black families. Whereas today, it's a breeding ground for chemical plants and pollutants, and residents were forced from their homes, and those that stayed suffered from exposure to contamination. Pollution. So, now I bring you back to the phrase environmental racism, which summarizes the idea present in environmental policy that black and brown lives are valued less than white lives, and people of wealth and privilege can go to a friend, maybe even a friend of a friend, who's on the zoning community or in the register of the deeds, saying that these big companies should put toxic waste and industries and facilities and stuff in factories near a poor town, most likely a black black town where folks already live in poverty, and you know, it's a win-win for the companies who have to pay less for the land and jump through less hurdles and for the wealthier people who don't have to face the eyesore that is a chemical plant. Now, I've thrown a bunch of information at you, and I know I've said a lot of kind of sad and scary things. So, how can you help? How can I help? I think the first step would be to learn more because what I've discussed barely, you know, touches the tip of the iceberg for many communities where there are countless more examples. If you guys are looking for more high-profile similar situations or scenarios to read up on about environmental racism, I recommend looking at the Baltimore lead paint study or even the infamous Flint, Michigan water crisis because both are really good examples that explain how climate change has affected minorities and how it really and it really puts the effects of climate change into perspective. I still have more to read up on with the ways environmental racism is systemically rooted, and I want to continue learning about the impacts, keeping myself aware of how future policies will affect the global south or minority populations, what countries are doing, how I can help. And my second tip is to get in with the grassroots movement on social media, on political campaigns, signing petitions, supporting local movements. Um, if you want to check out an organization, I suggest the Climate Reality Project. Because without regulations and plans to reduce emissions, we risk creating a toxic environment for everyone, especially minorities. And on that note, we end this episode. I hope you learned something new. I knew I, as I said before, I threw a whole bunch of information at you, but I think this was a very important topic to research, you know, educate myself on. I will have my sources and transcripts up on the card code by April 12th if you want to check it out and read some more stuff. Follow Icebreaker on Instagram at icebreaker.podcast and thank you for listening.